Hello and welcome to the podcast taking you beyond the pitch and inside the sports news stories. I'm Rob Harris and this is Sport Unlocked. This week we'll ask, how should horse racing respond to the Sheikh Mohammed scandal? Why should we be concerned about yet another attempted Russian doping cover-up? And what are the challenges facing the new boss of the Tokyo Olympics? Plus, we'll bring you some of the key clips from the FT Business of Football Summit and we'll analyse what we learned about the future of TV rights and the new Champions League format. That might sound a familiar issue for the pod, but we're getting weekly developments as these talks intensify. And talking alongside me on the pod again, episode five, is Martin Ziegler and alongside us, Tarek Panja. Ziegs, how are you doing? Yeah, all good, Rob. Um, nice to see you again, Tarek. We've had a, another another busy week in in lockdown, but um, it's certainly, there's, there's no putting your feet up, is there? It's, uh, it seems absolutely relentless the sports news over the last few weeks and yeah it's continued and once again this week we're discussing the fallout from a bbc panorama investigation it's centered on sheikh mohammed bin rashid al-maktoum he's the hereditary ruler of dubai and is also the prime minister of the united arab emirates he's also the founder of the godolphin horse racing stable based at newmarket more than 130 of his horses are trained here in britain and he's on friendly terms with the queen but there is deep concern about the whereabouts of one of his daughters. Princess Latifa was detained by commandos off the coast of India in 2018 after she tried to flee Dubai on a yacht. The BBC and Sky as well have released excerpts from video diaries that she said were recorded in a locked bathroom in a Dubai villa where she's being held. On Friday, the United Arab Emirates Embassy in London said that media coverage was not reflective of the actual position and she is being treated at home. But it's only a year since a judge in London ruled that Sheikh Mohammed had conducted a campaign of fear and intimidation against his estranged wife, Princess Haya, and had ordered the abduction of two of his daughters, including Latifa. Now, this is an issue far bigger than horse racing, but how much should the sport be scrutinising Sheikh Mohammed's ongoing involvement? Yeah, I mean, I think the focus has been back on. We, there was the, the court case with, with Princess Haya um, last year, and now BBC Panorama have um, obtained videos of his daughter, Latifa, saying that the Sheikh is keeping her effectively as a hostage in, in Dubai and um, locked up. The United Nations have got involved. And the focus really now in, in terms of sport is... He is such an important part of horse racing in in Britain and and in also in the United States. He is still a honorary member of the Jockey Club of the UK. He is a full member of the Jockey Club of, of America. So uh, this is a, this is somebody who's deeply involved in, in 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 the sport. Both the British Horse Racing Authority and the Jockey Club have refused to comment. But I think there's going to be re- really renewed focus now when lockdowns lifted and race owners start appearing back at races is he going to be welcomed back into the arms of the of the racing community because there's been some serious adverse publicity for godolphin and i think there's some uh, questions for the authorities to answer there's a wider point as well here maybe that he's also the ruler of dubai um which has been kind of at the forefront of that region sponsoring sports events and sports teams around the world I mean, you only have to look at football shirts of some of the biggest teams in Europe emblazoned with the words Fly Emirates, Um, you know, from Roma, Arsenal Stadium, for example, AC Milan, um, Real Madrid, PSG until very recently. All the big capital cities have had these these links to the Emirates. It'd be interesting whether these stories or whether this kind of um, nasty situation 
the human rights angle starts cutting through as um, as it gets um, discussed more and more. Because of the UAE and Dubai in particular being quite fortunate to escape the scrutiny that, say, Qatar has, the intense focus on Qatar human rights and association with their sponsors, as we talked about last week with the Bayern Munich fans, uh, concerned about Qatar Airways and their association with um, Bayern Munich. But, you know, seemingly there has been less of a focus on the fact you've got the Emirates Stadium, the Emirates FA Cup, and yet serious allegations now, particularly around Sheikh Mohammed and the, uh, you know, the, the right situation generally uh, in the UAE. This, this story with Latif is actually kind of... Um... It's such a Hollywood thriller as well in, in, in what happened initially. She she tried to escape. She didn't have a passport. And it turns out her, her capoeira teacher uh, became her friend, a Finnish woman, and they somehow engineered a way to, to get on a, on a boat and escape um, around 2018 um, and had thought they'd made it, um, were off the coast of India, where Indian special forces apparently acting on the um, request of the United Arab Emirates, stormed the boat and, and, and managed to sort of take Latifa away. It's such a kind of terrifying ordeal and the story is so dramatic that it would be hard for people to forget this one. And I guess when, when you're trying to, you know, have an image of a um, tolerant, um, sports-loving nation, these kind of stories and the, and the nature of them might make people think twice. This Emirates sponsorship is, it's like one step away, isn't it? Um, because it, although it's a state company, um, actually, when, you, when you're talking about horse racing, it's the man himself. That's why I think there's, that's a particular issue for the racing industry. And in terms of Princess Hire as well, she's a very well-known figure to all of us in the world of sport. The fact she's been uh, president of the International Equestrian Federation. Um, she's worked on the FIFA campaigns of her brother, um, Prince Ali of Jordan, when he was running for the FIFA presidency. So there are many significant figures in the world of sport who have been associated with Princess Hire. So, you know, they should be concerned. Yeah, we, you know, she, uh... She was very active in her brother's campaign, wasn't she? And she um, actually spoke very well in terms of trying to bring a, a, a new approach to the whole FIFA politics and um, try and get end the old Blatter era. And um, they were unsuccessful, but actually she she and was pretty impressive, actually. With, with, with horse racing, do you think ultimately it will be down to money as usual? Though? You know, Godolphin is perhaps the biggest investor... In, in jobs and, and, and it's not it's not an enormous industry it, it sort of needs these figures to, to fuel it I don't know how many um, hundreds of jobs are, are related to Godolphin and Sheikh Mohammed's investments is that why is that why they everyone's so quiet at the moment no one wants to talk it seems at all from that that industry sure I mean actually Good, Godolphin are one of the partners of the jockey club one of their commercial partners so they are intrinsically linked together um, financially as well. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the 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 end result of this is you see you might see Sheikh Mohammed moving away in a formal terms from uh, from racing. Um, but uh, Godolphin, you know, Godolphin will continue to be owned by the the UAE, and um, it's whether he is 
actually the figurehead or not. That might be the way around it. But I think it's uh, it's a, it, it's pretty. Um, if you were sitting in 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 the 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 uh, seats of power in horse racing, I think you'd be pretty uncomfortable about the situation now. Probably one of the things that's helped the situation in terms of the Queen is the fact that the pandemic preventing her going to the racing, Sheikh Mohammed going to the racing, because they'd often be seen together at Ascot, and that would have been the uncomfortable association if she'd been associated with him, seen with him after the court ruling. But um, the fact that they're not attending probably for now keeps the royal family at slight distance. But um, the question is how long that continues for. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a story in, in the Times um, after the court case last summer saying that actually the royal family had um, been given sort of fairly clear instructions that they should not be photographed together. So um, I don't think I, I don't think that situation is likely to arise now, even when even when lockdown is lifted. And we still await a thorough response from the world of horse racing over its close association with Sheikh Mohammed. Now, moving on to the world of the Olympics, and we now know for the next two games, the Russian team and athletes will be officially branded ROC. That stands for Russian Olympic Committee. At the last games, the winter ones in 2018, Russian competitors were known as Olympic athletes from Russia. This is all because they can't officially compete as Russia as part of the state-backed doping scheme punishment. And just this week, we had yet another case punishing Russians for a doping cover-up. This time, five Russian athletics officials were banned. It was after a deception was uncovered involving a fake medical clinic in a demolished building and made up claims about an athlete's car crash. Tarek, tell us more. Yeah, this was a this was a remarkable one. We've seen uh, over the years, uh, you know, remarkable stories, lots of bizarre incidents. But this one ranks uh, right up there. They, the top high jumper at the time, Daniel Lysenko failed to tell the authorities where he would be. So it would be a whereabouts failure in the world of anti-doping. You get three of those and you face a two-year ban. And he he was faced with this predicament. So what did they do? They said, oh, um, there's a reason for this. I was in hospital. I was feeling unwell. I was in hospital. Um, and here's here are the medical certificates to show this, this situation I was in. Um, the thing, the thing is, um, track and field has one of the best investigatory departments in all of sport, the, the Athletics Integrity Unit. And they said, well, okay, can we get some more detail? Can you send us all your paperwork? And that set up a real panic in Russia. They had to send this guy in for tests uh, at a different hospital because the one they suggested he was in was fake. An entire fake hospital fake doctors, fake medical certificates. The story totally fell apart when the AIU managed to get hold of emails and and phones and computers. Um, And it just shows the length that Russia is still going to. And this happened right at the moment Russia was trying to um, end its suspension, years-long suspension from world athletics. They were in talks at that very moment of of getting back into, into the collective getting Russian athletes to wear Russian vests, getting back into into track and field. Meanwhile, on the sidelines, from the president of the Russian Athletics Federation down, they were involved in this most bizarre scheme, which involved the athlete even asking to see the hospital, taking to a place that here's the hospital, and it turned out to be a pile of bricks. It was a building site. Um, yeah, total farce. Cracking story, though. 
So is this it, because World Athletics appear to have a, a more stringent ban than any other federation? What does that mean if it, for the Olympics if that goes ahead? It, they are. They still will have the most. They still will have the most stringent ban. World Athletics are pretty much the only federation in global sport that have held the line and have punished Russia for for that massive doping scheme. So come the Olympics, they'll only be allowed to send a maximum of ten participants to to the games, which is far fewer than than they would in any of the other sports that they would qualify for. Um, and and this this story that we highlighted is is a big reason why. And that's the thing, because yes, there was criticism over the then IAAF um, almost a decade ago now over their inaction over Russian cases. You know, even Seb Co questions over did it show a lack of curiosity. But I think what we have seen in recent years is athletics standing out as the ones to rigorously go after Russia and particularly the um, Athletics Integrity Unit. And yes, we might spend a lot of time on this pod questioning inaction by sports bodies in pursuing cases. But here we seem to cautiously welcome the fact that they do uh, pursue with rigour. Yeah, and it's not only it's not only been Russia either. They they got they got. Um, it's not focused on Russia too. Let let no one be under any kind of illusion that this this whole thing is about catching Russia in the act. They've got, they've gone after big targets. They're, they're, the main focus of the AIU is is going to check up on elite athletes, the very top. And it was the AIU. Let's not forget that um, was the the organisation that investigated um, Christian Coleman, the. Um, US 100 meter world champion and the favourite for the gold at Tokyo. He's now going to be uh, missing those games after being banned for for a similar uh, situation. Three whereabouts failures in a calendar year, and and Christian Coleman won't be going to to the US. And again, that's that's thanks to the work of the Ath- Athletics Integrity Unit uh, under a lot of pressure from from um, from institutions in the US. Well, by the Olympics this summer, we hope to finally resolve one other issue. That's what the Champions League will look like from 2024. And we've got a better idea this week of how some of the arguments are shaping up on all sides after the Financial Times Business of Football Summit. We heard from the European League's organisation, the European Club Association and various other clubs and financial experts from across the world of football. Now, from what we listen to virtually... What new did we discover about what the shape of the Champions League will look like and just how those talks are going? Yeah, I, th- I thought it was um, a really significant week, actually, because uh, what, what we heard in some detail was from Charlie Marshall, who's the chief executive of the European Clubs Association, and Lars Christer Olsen, the, uh, the, the president of the European Leagues. Now, they're the, they're the sort of two main bodies who are going to feed back into UEFA. And... Charlie Marshall made absolutely clear that the European Clubs Association is 100% behind the reform plans um, and including this very controversial idea of having this safety net where um, you can have a couple of clubs who get into the Champions League each year, not based on their sporting merit, but just on the fact that they've had a a high coefficient because of um, their previous record in Europe. So... It, it just became absolutely clear that, I, that to me, anyway, that the ECA and UEFA have been together in this. They've put this together themselves um, because it's uh, it's something that will suit both of them. Um, 
it's a, it's a, I think it's a pretty big it's a pretty big departure. I can't think of any other football event where you where you get entry to a tournament just based on the fact that you are you've had a, a good record previously. Um, it's it's a it's I think it's a pretty significant departure. UEFA should be very careful about going down this road, in my view. Um, on the other hand, you know there is a the pragmatist view. If they don't do this, then things could be much worse, and you you know you have clubs breaking away. Well, let's hear now from some of the key players. First, Charlie Marshall. He's the chief executive of the European Club Association, and he talked up the importance of the elite clubs to the Champions League. It's not the sort of greedy clubs taking all the money. It's the greedy clubs. You know, it's the clubs who who who, who are often labelled as that. Um, but they're really the ones that drive the value. And if we get the system of distributing the value right, then we should create stability. Well, that's the view of the club's representative body. But the chief executive of the Bundesliga, Christian Seifer, isn't pleased at all with the action of some of the powerful clubs, particularly as he's seen all these potential talks about a breakaway Super League. The brutal truth is that a lot of, a few, not all of them, but a few of these so-called super clubs are in fact... I would say poorly managed um, cash burning machines who were not able in a decade of incredible growth, um, who were not able to not even come close to a somehow sustainable business model. At the end, they threatening UEFA and trying to create some kind of pressure to get more money and to force UEFA to do some changes and to give them more money. But in fact, no matter if it's a signing fee for a Super League or more money from the from the Champions League, at the end they will ca- they will burn this money like they they burned it the last ten years. And um, except of I would say, except of threatening threatening UEFA um, every few years, they should rather think about developing a sustainable business model. Christian Seifert there and. It did seem, though they didn't name them, that he might be referring to the heavily indebted Barcelona and Real Madrid in terms of pushing for the Super League, Tarek. Yeah, it was a a forthright intervention. These conferences aren't really known for people um, speaking so bluntly. Often you you, you have to sort of pass the words carefully to figure out what they really mean. But he, he didn't seem to leave much doubt um and he made it he made a good point as well uh, in some ways because he essentially said even if these teams go in a super league they don't know how to manage themselves so all this additional revenue they're going to make all this money they'll just waste it so this isn't beneficial for football in in any way and of course he's he's obviously got an agenda he's um he's the chief executive of a of a of a major football league and if there is a breakaway his his league Will be one of the leagues that that is damaged. So it's um you know a game of self interest here. But you know arguably you could say yeah he he was quite honest. If you look at the numbers uh, at Barcelona in particular, they are a, at the moment at least a cash burning machine. Lars Christopher Olsen he uh, he was saying actually what you need to do from the Euro- European league's perspective. I mean he's also talking from a sort of their self interest and their members self interest is to have the champions of Scotland and Denmark given an automatic place, not the sixth-placed team in England and Spain. Um, it, which is, you know, which is what you can, you can, that's what you would expect him to say. But what do you, what do you think of this argument that you know, UEFA has to be pragmatic? It has to, 
accept the fact that you know the, the the big clubs do drive the commercial interest they do drive the broadcast rights and that it's right that they should have some sort of return because you know they 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 prop up the pyramid i mean what do you think about that argument i mean part of me thinks there is some sort of merit in that but part of me also thinks it should be sporting merit too and how much is driven by the excitement of changing dynamics of the Champions League when you get Ajax coming through Atalanta last season? Part of the, the drama of the, uh, the quarterfinals was the fact we had newcomers there and it's new players fans might be discovering or do actually those fans, would they just prefer to watch Ronaldo versus Messi and Mbappe um, versus Lewandowski on the, on the same pitch as well? Or do we get sick of that after a time because it just becomes repetitive? Uh, you know, how many people will only tune in to La Liga from um, overseas to the Clasicos? They're not necessarily watching uh, Levante against Barcelona on a weekly basis. And then there's the um, the additional workload on players. And I think, you know, obviously the Premier League, we had the Premier League clubs meeting this week as well. And although, of course, the big six have their own agendas and, you know, they're determined to try to reshape the Champions League in their vision, we certainly got the wider pushback, didn't we, from the Premier League in terms of how do they accommodate the extra 100 fixtures, expanded the Champions League from six to 10 rounds. And also in terms of the allocation of those extra spots, the fact they don't want to see the situation weakened where Liverpool in sixth place now would still potentially qualify for the Champions League um, in, in this scenario. So it's, it's a question of how much, the, uh, how much, how much can UEFA resist the leagues, how much can they resist the smaller clubs or how much are they fearing the potential weight of um, Barcelona, Real Madrid, PSG perhaps getting together and um, what sway do they actually hold over UEFA in, in terms of being able to, uh, you know, to, to try to um, get them to sway to their vision? Well, these are the these are the kind of dynamics at, at play about in football politics as well, aren't they? Because if you remember... I think all three of us were in Athens the day uh, Alexander Seferin was elected as UEFA president. And he made very clear that he wouldn't be the president for the big, but be the president for the medium and small sized, be they um, national FAs or, or clubs. So it's a really fine balancing act there. If, if we're saying all this is going to be freighted in terms of what benefits the biggest clubs so they can play each other more and more and, and generate more revenue. How does that fit into the vision of the man who was elected UA for president on a platform of being the champion of small and medium um, institutions? I think that's a question maybe he'll, he'll have to answer. And one, one of his points might be, well, I've arranged this third division tournament this UEFA conference for these guys to play, but is that is that what they wanted? Is that is that it? Is that is that where the vision starts and finishes? Well, it was a vision that first emerged in the final weeks of Michel Platini's presidency, a year before Alexander Sheffron was elected as UEFA president in 2016. And now the challenge for UEFA is generating television revenue from all these additional European games. And the sale of TV rights is something on the minds of the Premier League at the moment as they are in the midst of the auction for the rights from 2022 onwards. Particularly, they've got the domestic deal to do. And we've been hearing at the FT Summit this week from Claire Enders, the media analyst, who believes the Premier League need to move away from selling UK rights in three-year cycles and 
move towards a more long-term vision to try to protect the revenue that they can generate in this very volatile market. If I were the Premier League, I, I would, I would, I would exclude from my mind the fairy godmother story that seems to have kept their their views extraordinarily short-term focused and extraordinarily focused. Also, may I say, in the past, and they're entirely entitled to do this on gaming, gaming their bidders so that they drive each other into a frenzy of suicide. Now, that is a scorched earth policy, which I swear will never work again. So I would go long term years to seven years, symbiotic relationships. Look at what's happened in the US with all of the major sports and say to myself, gosh, 10 years really looks great when you have an extraordinary actually trying to do different things. You're trying to develop a new interest. You're trying to reclaim the under 25s and you're trying to get them out there to get some support. So I, if I were the Premier League, I would prioritize I would see this as a crisis, an existential crisis. And I would say to myself every day, do I want to be golf? And then say, no, I don't want to do that. And then what am I going to do about that? So I avoid being golf. And and so I would be very, very innovative. Yeah, we will, I, I hope we'll see it. Well, publicly, at least the Premier League Chief Executive Richard Masters doesn't believe that they're facing any sort of crisis. And the sense we got from him at the FT Summit is that he's not really planning anything innovative either. He's sticking to selling in three-year right cycles domestically. He also thought that the league isn't going to be impacted by the wider economic turbulence. He doesn't see that there's going to be some drop in the value of rights. Is he being excessively optimistic there? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, Richard Masters, he would say that he doesn't think the Premier League, Premier league rights are going to go down or have plateaued. I mean, even though they went down 8% last time, the domestic rights. I think he would say that. And Simon Green from BT Sport, he would say that they're going to, they are going to go down because that's that's what suits them both. But actually, I thought the, the more interesting thing was um, the Masters ruling out any any idea of having longer than three years because that's something I think both Sky and BT would like. That, that could you know they do do longer term deals for international rights to Premier League. But they resisted doing that for for the domestic rights, and Masters said there were no plans to. It's going to be three years the next time, so I think that sort of removed something from the table, which some people in the media industry had thought would would be a, a potentially attractive possibility to get some sort of long term um, stability, both for the leagues and for the broadcasters. So always that challenge for the Premier League in assessing where and forecasting the future, as in when to do a long term deal. So. If they think the market's going to dip, then it would make sense to, to lock broadcasters into a, a long-term arrangement. Or if they see a depressed market, to think, well, actually, there could be an upturn in a few years' time. So they're, they're really difficult judgment calls that they have to make in terms of what to do. You know, golf has done long-term deals in the States with NBC. The IOC has done long-term deals over the rights to its games with Discovery and NBC as well. I found it quite surprising, to be honest, that it's so unequivocal on, on that point, given the state of the economy and what, what people are saying is a state of the rights market. Um, you know, I think common sense would suggest the longer term rights offer surety to whoever um, invests in them. You're talking about big money rights, billions of pounds, dollars, euros, whatever. Um, and you're going to see ancillary investments from whoever, whoever um, buys those rights. Um, I was quite surprised he was so, um, um, like I said, unequivocal about saying this is just not going to happen um, because Claire Enders from Enders Analysis, one of the companies that, that looks at these rights, she was asked 
um, in the Q and A session there, if I remember, what would you what would you um, tell the Premier League if they could do one thing? And without a second thought, she said, "Just sell your rights for a longer cycles. You make more money." Um, and you know, to be fair to Claire, she's been on the money over the years when it comes to um, forecasting the direction of travel. Yeah, if you look at the um, the Scandinavian deal that was done for the the Premier League rights uh, last year. Um, I mean that was remarkable. More than somewhere north of two billion pounds for, but that's for six years. I mean it's a you know it's an amazing deal for Premier League, and it came uh, just before the pandemic, so it was a, a you know perfectly timed. I don't think they probably wouldn't get that now, but I mean look at that. Um, that's for the Nordic nations. You got that's already in the bag, so maybe that's why he's uh, Masters is, is is fairly confident about the managing to at least keep pace with with what they have overall, and um, we'll also, maybe there'll be a, maybe there will be a an OTT platform comes in a bit more. Amazon have been they've been they went in for the uh, Serie A rights I think in, in in a way they didn't they haven't won them but and they they're doing a bit of Champions League next season for in in Germany and Italy so maybe Amazon will up the market a bit for the domestic rights. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Serie A. Um, this was a big week for them. Uh, they had two bids on the table, uh, one from Sky, long-time partner, for 750 million euros a season, and a bigger one from DAZN, speaking of cash-burning machines, for 850 million euros. Um, and alongside that, they've had this offer from um, a group of funds uh, led by CVC, which seems to be investing in everything, every sport at the moment, um, for about 1.7 billion for 10% of the future TV rights. So a bunch of company uh, teams that are cash strapped really want to go with the CVC money. Um, and the well-run clubs have basically said, look, we're not going to do this. And they seem to be um, at, a, at a stalemate here. Uh, which is very Italian. The last um, TV right sale also was um, in a bit of a mess. Uh, speaking to people at DAZN, um, they're quite confused. They're, Look, we've, we've offered so much money, more than anyone else. Why don't they just take our cash? Um, and I guess it, there is no easy answer. It is dealing with Italy, dealing with Serie A. Um, the one good ray of hope, I suppose, is that those numbers aren't bad at all. 850 million from DAZN and 750 million from Sky at this moment in time, given what we saw that happen in France, is, is not the worst result at all. Um, so potentially um, good good news for others uh, there, if you want to look at it a glass half full. Um, we should know in, a, in the next few days. And the one thing we've got used to, which we've never had before in Britain, is every Premier League game being shown live on television during the pandemic. And we also had a view from the championship at the FT Summit from Lungi Masebo, the chief operating officer at Birmingham, just wondering how much fan habits might have changed by being able to watch so much on television and the challenge going forward about bringing them back into the stadiums. She started by discussing the financial benefits for Birmingham by being able to sell Jude Bellingham to Borussia Dortmund for 25 million euros last year. Um, we had a big transfer last season which has actually softened the blow in terms of um, of our losses. Uh, that recovery, though, is going to be a long haul. We are also having to invest in our, our stadium at the moment at St Andrews, um, but that can actually only help with, with getting spectators back. 
Um, and I think there's a question around are our supporters going to want to come back where they're actually used to, to consuming football at home now um, through a TV screen or, or through their mobiles. And I think there's still very much a um, match day sort of uh, feel around um, people coming back to stadiums. And I think the appetite will still be there for people because I think it's a little bit more than what's happening on the pitch for the, for the 90 minutes. One other issue that came up at the FT Summit was of Mesut Ozil and his Arsenal career. And uh, Tarek, who, who were you able to put a question to on that? Yeah, it was interesting that it was um, the Arsenal chief executive, Vino Venkatashim. He was on the uh, diversity panel. Um, and it was the first time I was sort of able to get an Arsenal executive maybe on the record about what actually happened in that incident when Mesut Ozil spoke up uh, for the for that Uyghur minority who are facing um, what some people have described as a as a as a genocide in in China um, that led to a um, a bit of a backlash in China that Arsenal quickly responded to and and distanced themselves as as fast as they could from comments from who at the time was one of their star players in order to not it seemed offend. Uh, People in China, their investors in China, a big market for them. Um, and he was asked about it and he kind of said, well, that was nothing to do with it. We were asked the question and, and we we answered it. Um, but that's not always the case, right, Rob? You've asked plenty of questions in your time. You don't always get an answer. And he didn't originally answer the question put to him and he was followed up on it by Morad Ahmed from the FT who was hosting the session. The club specifically made a statement after um, you could have remained silent on it, but the club specifically made a statement, uh, and it felt like at the time it was uh, to do with maintaining your business in China over over um, a, a political issue, um, uh, which was a bit of a third rail. I mean, is it, that's fair to say? You um, did didn't you take a kind of a commercial view to the activism of one of your players? No, I don't think that's fair to say that we took a commercial view. I know that that's how that has been reported, but I don't think it's fair to say we took a commercial view. So we were we were asked for comment around uh, the situation. Uh, predominantly in China, we were asked for comment. We were asked for comment generally. And our position, as we often say, is um, this is a, this is a statement that player a player has made in their individual capacity. So the, the, okay. the, for us, it wasn't about a. Uh, you know, a commercial driver behind that. It was simply around, um, I guess, being clear that this wasn't Mesut making a club statement. This was Mesut making a, a statement, as his is right, in an individual capacity. Well, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's one of the classic thing. All all clubs and leagues are terrified of uh, doing anything which might um, provoke the hostility of the Chinese because they think that that is the really big un untapped market. I mean, we had the the issue with with the the MBA from um, over the 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 Hong Kong riots there, the protests there, um, the MBA found themselves blacklisted for a time by Chinese TV. Özil, as soon as he spoke out about the the, the, the Uyghurs, they, they the commentators just refused to mention his name. Um, so, not surprisingly, Arsenal running scared uh, in, in a way because they. Uh, um, so it's perhaps not surprising that Arsenal are running scared because they're terrified that they're going to be on the end of a similar sort of boycott by Chinese TV.
and for you know when you're looking at uh, your your uh, your future plans and that includes developing your chinese market that's a big that can be a potentially a very big well, it's a slippery slope then right Ziggs, because you've got um you open yourselves up to accusations of potentially hypocrisy etc because you pick and choose the, the the battles you you're willing to to fight based on where your income is coming from that's uh, perhaps that's just life but it's quite stark when you see some of these things put side by side uh, it was interesting, actually. There's talk about an Olympic boycott, and China's backlash has been quite firm. There was a there was a comment piece in in um, a state-owned newspaper, the Global Times, uh, in reaction to some of these calls for an Olympic boycott, to say, you know, if you boycott us, we we will we will notice, and you will get a reaction. You know, mark our words, um, and that that I think is 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 pretty pretty strong talk uh, when we're talking about. You know, a sporting event, and it kind of shows um, China's posture right now and its place in the world. And before China hosts the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, we've got the rescheduled 2020 Summer Games in Japan. And last week we had the resignation of the Tokyo Games president in a sexism scandal. This week his successor has been appointed and she's Shiko Hashimoto. She's not just been serving as Olympics minister, she's also the most successful multi-season athlete in Olympics history. She's competed at four winter games and three summer games. But she's now stepping into one of the most challenging Olympic roles ever, tasked with organising a Games already postponed once during the pandemic and still facing ongoing doubts caused by the coronavirus. Yeah, and trying to decide whether that she should go ahead with them in in the in the face of very significant national opposition and um, with also in, in some opposition involving some parts of the government. So yeah, talk about a difficult job to take on at short notice. But um, good luck to her. That's all you can say. It was interesting, the IOC reaction, again, it, it took so long to come to the right decision um, with, with the Japanese um, organisers here because they were going to appoint a replace an 83-year-old man with an 84-year-old man until the obvious backlash led to this appointment. And it was interesting from the IOC's point of view. Initially, they, they um, said we should all move on after Maury had apologised. And then two weeks later, said, this is a great thing. This is what should have happened uh, after all which uh, shows you a little bit how that organisation is run. <laughs> well, one organisation we're grateful for this week is the Financial Times. Thanks for allowing the use of clips from their superb Business of Football Summit this week. And thank you to everyone for listening to Episode 5 of Sport Unlocked. If you've got any questions, issues you want us to explore in future episodes, drop us a line, sportunlockpod at gmail.com or tweet us at sportunlocked. And enjoy whatever sport you're viewing in the days ahead. And we'll hope to speak to you soon. Goodbye for now. Sport.